you know, 40% of Republicans said they believe that the Democrats were running pedophile sex rings. And yeah. so if people believe these things, it's very hard to reach them in terms of let's talk about infrastructure. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Today's pod is a candid conversation with American political journalist and author David Korn. David is the Washington, D.C. bureau chief for Mother Jones magazine, a major cable news commentator and analyst for MSNBC. He's also the best-selling author of a slew of books about American politics and one of my personal favorite online newsletters, Our Land. I'm having David on today to talk about what's going on with the country, but particularly with the Republican Party. His newest book, American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy, seems incredibly topical as we watch the chaos unfold in the House of Representatives and see what's happening in the GOP-led states. David knows D.C., and he knows politics, and he thought he could give us a little insight into the insanity we're all living through. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, veteran political journalist, prolific TV commentator, and best-selling author David Korn. Welcome, David. Good to be with you. Thank you for joining me. And I mean, I've been following your work for years through Mother Jones, now with your newsletter. You're just one of the best political writers out there. And for a girl who named her project Politics Girl, that really means something. Well, it means something to me too, and I'll be sending you a check in the mail. Thanks for saying that. <laughs> Good. I need way more checks, way more checks. Now, along with journalism, as I said in the introduction, you've also written a ton of books. So just to name a few, you're the author of Showdown, which was about how Obama fought back against John Boehner and the Tea Party, The Lies of George W. Bush. You co-authored Hubris about Bush and the Bush-Cheney world selling the Iraq war to the American people. You co-authored Russian Roulette, which was basically an insider story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. And now you've written American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy. You're right. That's all true. <laughs> <laughs> well, American Psychosis is great because it's basically a behind the scenes account of how sort of from the 1950s on the GOP has encouraged and exploited extremism and bigotry and paranoia to gain power. And as I understand it, you spent about a year trying to figure out if the Republicans Party's surrender to Trumpism was some sort of departure from the norms mm -hmm. or if it made sense for the party to have ended up here. Yeah, I mean, this is the book is a history of the Republican Party's interactions and relationship with political extremism on the far right, on the fringes. That could be paranoid conspiracy theory, uh, segregationists, uh, far right fundamentalism, um, all sorts of different forms of, of extremism, going back to the days of McCarthyism up until um, 10 minutes ago. And <laughs> it's, I kind of started on this book and I was just interested at the time to think about whether anybody had written a full take on this relationship between the, the, the Republican establishment and the far right. I assumed it had to be out there and I went around looking and I found no one had actually done a book on this. And you know, the expression, be the change you want to be. Sometimes you have to write the book you want to read. And so I took it on myself to ex examine this. And I found that there's a pretty straight through line. It waxes, it wanes. But from the early 50s until today of the GOP exploiting 
and encouraging far-right kookiness, is one way to put it, or extremism, um, for their own benefit. And that could be McCarthy uh, and the Republicans embracing McCarthyism, uh, which was an irrational, paranoid conspiracy theory that um, Moscow had taken over the entire U.S. government, including uh, Dwight Eisenhower, as one of the head of the head of the John Birch Society believed, to interactions with Nixon cutting deals with segregationists in the South in order to get the nomination in 1968, um, Ronald Reagan cutting deals with the New Right and the religious right, the far right, the moral majority, when actually members of the moral majority were calling or at least saying that you'd be right under God's law to execute homosexuals to the Tea Party, to the Bushes, younger and elder making deals with Pat Robertson and the Christian Coalition, Sarah Palin, and up into Trump. So, I mean, Donald Trump, you know, to be clear here, has done this more so than anyone else yeah. in a clearer, brighter, center stage sort of way, but he's not doing anything that's fundamentally new. The Republican Party, every Republican president, every major Republican president at some point has reached an accommodation and has used and egged on the furthest elements of the fringe right. So that was always there. It always happened. It was kept to the side. It was like the uncle you kept upstairs in the attic. You didn't talk about it. It was undercovered by journalists at the time. It's not a big part of, of, of political history, but it was always there. And Donald Trump brought it out into the open. Absolutely. I always say it's it's not that it wasn't in the script. It's that they read the stage directions, right? Like it's there. You just don't normally hear it out loud. And all of a sudden we were hearing it out loud. Yeah, it was something that was that was to be kept to the side. Um, Goldwater um, in 1964 made tremendous use of the John Birch Society, which was this group started by a candy manufacturer named Robert Welch, who really believed there was a red under every bed in every PTA, in every union, in every classroom, in every corporation. You know, he would say things like 90% of the United States is controlled by the communists. And they were considered to be crazy, kooky. It was like QAnon, but without the, the baby eating and sex trafficking. Uh, there was a cabal that had just taken over every major power structure, including the U.S. government in, in America. But they were hundreds of thousands. They gave money to the Republican Party. And Barry Goldwater in 64 wanted to use them as the basis, sort of the volunteer army for his campaign. And so he did not want to disavow them. And he even asked William Buckley, who was the godfather of the conservative movement, the editor of the National Review, uh, to go easy on them. Do not disavow them. Let's not drive them out of our tent. Now, he didn't publicly bear hug the John Birch Society. He tried not to criticize them in public, but he made a deal, basically. He wanted them on his side. And there's always been some element like that. Even good old Mitt Romney, who you know has shown to himself to be a man of principle sometimes, like when he voted to you know convict Donald Trump in, in impeachment. Uh, but when he was running in 2011 and the Tea Party was ascendant and he, people were doubting his conservative credentials, who did he embrace? A man named Donald Trump, who at that time was pushing the racist birth of conspiracy theory. Now, Romney himself would not endorse that racist nonsense, 
but he he accepted the endorsement and literally hugged the man who was championing that. So yeah. here he, he was making his deal with the Trumpian devil and, and accepting um, Republican extremism because he wanted to get the Republican nomination. Yeah. So the whole thing is not really Trump and all of this is no exception. It's a pattern that the Republican Party and the GOP have followed for years where you're kind of using fear or resentment or prejudice or grievance in a quest for power to use it uh, to your own advantage, right? That it's a way to win elections, to play footsie or to play ball with some of the most extremist forces in America to ensure your party continues to win, uh, despite being the minority really sentiment in the country. So when we look back at Trump both sidesing Charlottesville or telling the Proud Boys to stand back or stand by, mm. it's it's the part that was always, as you said, to the side, but all of a sudden mm -hmm. we're seeing it right in the forefront. So assembling white supremacists and neo-Nazis and Christian mm -hmm. nationalists and now QAnoners and the rest of the in insurrectionists to form a violent mob to attack the Capitol was simply kind of the most in-your-face manifestation of a mm -hmm. classic GOP tactic, which is courting and ginning up what you're calling kind of kooks and bigots. Um, and in this case, just setting them loose. I trace this back to, you know, 70 years back to the 1950s after the World War II, when the Republican Party at that point was completely decimated. And they really latched on to McCarthyism and the Red Scare as a way to sort of get back into, get back into power and yeah. to try to delegitimize the Democrats who, through the New Deal and supporting uh, World War II, which is two things that the Republicans to certain degrees did, did, did not, had become ascendant. Um, so Republicans back then started making common cause with some of the most extreme conspiracy theories that you could, that you could come up with that talked about a subversive enemy within the country being the Democrats and how uh, there was an internal foe that needed to be countered. But, it, you know, that, that, that goes back, you know, to the late 40s, early 50s. But if you just, you know, turn the dial back to, say, the 90s, you see uh, with the rise of Rush Limbaugh in mm. conservative talk radio, you had the rise of Newt Gingrich um, yeah. in the House, who literally said, we have to demonize and dehumanize the Democrats. We have to make you know people think that they are the enemies of America and treat them like traitors and radicals and, and bizarre people who don't understand um, American values. And yeah. he created this tribalistic approach to politics that, that in conjunction with other, other things going on, started, I would say, radicalizing base Republicans. From there, you had Sarah Palin a few years later, when she was on the ticket with John McCain, saying that, that that Barack Obama was not a real American, he piled around with terrorists, and they and she you know raised issues that were adjacent to the birther conspiracy theory that there was something different about Obama. He didn't. He was a so, secret socialist. He didn't really understand America, and further radicalized the Republican base. So basically, sent the message to to the base that Obama and the Democrats 
want to get you. They want to undermine this country. They want to actually destroy this country. And then with the with with the emergence a few years later of the Tea Party, you literally, you literally had Glenn Beck on Fox saying that Barack Obama was going to set up concentration camps for his enemies, death panels, and had a secret plan to destroy the economy so that he could implement a dictatorship. These are things that Glenn Beck literally said, and John Boehner, other leading Republicans appeared on his show and legitimized him. Here was the Republican Party, as they had done with Rush Limbaugh, making common cause with some of the most extremist, irrational far-right voices out there, and again, signaling to their base, this is reality. The reality is that Obama wants to destroy this country, and we have to do something about that. So you have a couple of decades of Republicans courting this element in our politics, and John Boehner actually rode this sentiment to become um, Speaker of the House by getting these people to vote in 2010. And then by the time Donald Trump comes around, you know, he's just saying there's been so much red meat thrown to the Republican base over the last 25 years. No one can throw red meat better than me. So let Chris Christie talk about infrastructure. Let Bobby Jindal, the governor of Louisiana, talk about tax policy. Let Jeb Bush talk about education. I'm going to tell, you know, I know the Republican base better than they do. And so he threw out hate grievance, paranoia, bigotry, conspiracy theories. There was one rally in which one of, you know, someone stood up and said in, in the crowd, you know, the Muslims, we got to get rid of them. You know, got to get rid of all the Muslims. And what did Donald Trump said? He said, well, you know what? We're going to look at that. He knew the base. And the base by this point had been so conditioned by the Republican Party's uh, interaction with extremist elements that uh, they went, you know, 40%, 50% that a majority went for Donald Trump. So yeah. it was, a, it was, it was, it was, so he was not a break from the past. He was a continuation and acceleration of what had previously happened. And it's continuing today. I mean, I think it's interesting that you're talking about the rallies with Trump because he did have a handle on how much red meat they'd fed the base, that they were basically rabid for red meat at this point. And like build the wall came from the crowd, not from mm -hmm. uh, the leadership. They just hooked onto it because it was going to work. Lock her up came from the crowd, not the leadership. They just hooked onto it and made it work. You know, I think it's fascinating where we're at now because what you're talking about, about people saying these ludicrous things about Democrats and how we're evil. I mean, I often blame the Newt Gingrich years of the 90s for where we started with this don't reach across the aisle, Democrats are evil, Democrats are the enemy, this kind of concept where people stop working together in Congress. But the lies and the perpetuation of lies only continues to get worse every day. I mean, look at the ridiculous election for Speaker of the House, right? Look at who Kevin McCarthy is putting on the committees and who the Republican frontrunners are for the 2024 election. I mean, it looks like we're, it looks like a party that's holding up the craziest and most dangerous among them now as their standard bearers. Like I can't even read Republican tweets these days, which by the way, will not leave my feed. It doesn't matter what I do. I'm I'm looking at Marsha Blackburn without having kind of a visceral reaction. It's like they're not even pretending to be upstanding people anymore. It's just straight mm -hmm. lies from leadership right on down. The official Republican Twitter account just posted, 
In two years, Joe Biden has undermined our national security, enabled criminals everywhere and tanked our economy, right? And I was like, what in the hell are they even talking about? Like that doesn't even, it doesn't jive with reality on any level, but their voters won't know that because their voters aren't listening to the actual facts. As I said, I keep listening to Marsha freaking Blackburn. She treated America is less safe, worse off, and suffering because of Biden's failed policies and leadership. And by every metric you could measure the government, Biden is the opposite of failed leadership, right? You know, one of the pivotal figures in the speakership fight was Marjorie Taylor Greene. This is you what know, I want to talk to you about. Just, I mean, just, these just are the standard few, bearers now. Yeah, yeah. just a few you know, uh, years ago, she was publicly hailing QAnon. A story that I broke was that she um, was the monitor of a Facebook group that was promoting extremist uh, memes and ideas and also supporting today the John Birch Society. She I amplified uh, social media posts that called for the execution of Nancy Pelosi and, and, and Barack Obama. There was, of course, the Jewish space lasers. I mean, it's really, you know, dumb, stupid, irrational conspiracy mongering. Um, and yet now, you know, she is Kevin McCarthy's top, top ally. She's mm-hmm. telling people that she thinks she has a shot at being Donald Trump's running mate. Should he actually get the nomination? Mm. And it's, you know, you know, we've been somewhat conditioned um, over the past five, six, seven years to become accustomed to this sort of absurdity. But um, if you pause for a moment and just think about how a person like that could be influential within the Republican Party, it's pretty, pretty stunning. And it shows, you know, as crazy and as and as you know, awful as as, as things were in, in Newt Gingrich's Newt Gingrich's day, in terms of tribalism and demonization of the enemy and so on, all that's continued with more stupidity added to the mix. And it sounds hyperbolic. It sounds highly partisan to say things like this. But the Republican Party has really in some ways, gone crazy. That was my, my book was titled American Psychosis because, you know, the, the core belief of the Republican Party was not anything ideological, you know, about taxes or housing policy or national security. It was that the election was stolen in 2020. And it's not that there's n- not much evidence. There is really no evidence. No one's come forward with anything resembling proof. And yet, you know, twenty percent of the public believes this as an article of faith, and when you become detached from reality and can't process reality, that's psychosis. So that's why I called the book "American Psychosis." It's a political psychosis, but it becomes really hard if you believe that to then talk about let's do a bipartisan immigration bill. You know, or you know, how do you talk about policy? How do you talk about something like climate change or economic? Uh, growth if you aren't firmly rooted in the basics of reality, which is there was an election, Donald Trump lost, Joe Biden won. Now let's move on and argue about other things. Uh, so it's it's a tough thing, I think, to just brand a whole party or 20 or 30 percent of the American populace as being bonkers. But, you know, we have kind of reached that point uh, when they you know, 40% of Republicans 
said they believed that the Democrats were running pedophile sex rings. You know, that's, you know, 40% to 60% believe Barack Obama was a secret socialist Muslim born in Kenya. And yeah. so if people believe these things, it's very hard to reach them in terms of Let's talk about infrastructure. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm sure you use the term psychosis in your in your book very deliberately, you know, for those people who don't know, um, psychosis is a condition where you're detached from reality or you don't accept reality. And like you said, it's sort of a political psychosis at this point. I mean, if the word psychosis is probably not best suited to the Republican leadership, but more to the Republican voters, because it's hard not to see millions of Americans, despite, as you said, all evidence to the contrary, collectively believing the election was stolen or collectively believing that Donald Trump is their savior or a chosen one, or that Joe Biden is some pedophilic monster instead of the president. That kind of group psychosis, it moves kind of the way Freudian's uh, group mentality moves, you know, like it's as a as a unit. There's no critical thought left. There's no room for it left. So you can't say, okay, well, let's put to the side that you don't believe the election was legit and talk about infrastructure because it's impossible. But then they're constantly being fed a continual stream of lies by where they get their information, right? So I don't know what we're supposed to do about that because Republicans are also capitalizing on the power of right-wing media and the megaphone of places like Fox knowing that their voters are no longer going to other sources of information. So they can just keep feeding the lies to them. And I mean, you recently pointed out in one of your newsletters that Tucker Carlson, who is the number one cable news host in America, just did a piece to his millions and millions of viewers where he blended Trumpist paranoia with JFK conspiracy and then threw in like a Nixon Watergate twist to it. And it was like you said, it was like listening to someone's crazy uncle that lives in the attic, but it's people's news source. And he and the other right-wing news hosts do this with authority. And they use phraseology like indisputable facts and things that cannot be denied. And these aren't indisputable facts or things that can't be denied, but it's just a continuation of the fear-mongering from the same people that push the Great Replacement Theory or pro-Russia disinformation or the whole thing that led up to January 6th. Yeah. And, you know, I've... I, I... You know, I've, I've reached what I think is the sad conclusion that a lot of Americans can't be reached. Um, there is a, um, you know, they, they are so deeply rooted in, you can call it a psychosis, or just deeply rooted in their alternative reality, their bizarre Fox-driven narratives, which, you know, often are reinforcing, you know, if someone's going to, you know, if, if you believe the deep state is, you know, is out there to, destroy Trump and everything that's good about America, anyone who argues against that, well, they're obviously in on the deep state conspiracy. Right. And so so my thinking is, okay, how many Americans fall into this category? 20%, 30%, whatever it might be. And it really now becomes incumbent, not on us to get them to change their minds, but on those who haven't fallen prey to this, to rally together and find ways to contain the craziness. You know, they, during Cold War days, you know, the big idea was to contain the Soviet Union. You couldn't, you wouldn't change it. You couldn't, you know, you didn't want to get into a war with it. 
because uh, that could have tremendously awful consequences for the entire planet. And yeah. so how could you contain its, you know, enlargement, its advancement? And I think that's kind of the way we need to look at the current situation, that there are Americans who cannot be won over any longer through persuasion and debates. And so and how can you know facts? How can the rest of us combine together, even across ideological and even partisan lines, so that we protect foundational aspects of our democracy and try to have you know decent political conversations and debates beyond, you know, the Fox craziness. And, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to do. It's, you know, a lot of it involved, you know, entails, you know, energizing people or getting people to pay attention who are not into politics and would rather watch Dancing with the Stars than listen to your podcast. Uh, I know that's hard to believe. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, right. Um, I think that's kind of the, the, the task at hand to have people realize what, that there is a serious issue here and that to preserve our democracy and to preserve a worthwhile political, national political discourse, uh, we need to have folks who, at least who agree on reality, to uh, form a community, which is a majority position. You know, there are more people in this camp, you know, than, than, than in the Trump crazy camp. But organizing them and getting people to see that is the challenge. Yeah, it's also a challenge that our system is set up to favor the minority, which also happens to yeah, be. Yeah, I mean, there are, a lot of, of there are a lot of institutional impediments. The mm -hmm. Senate having, you know, two senators for every state, no matter the size, the, the electoral, electoral college, gerrymandering. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that, that give a minority party uh, leverage here, which mm -hmm. is why uh, you, you, you see, um, you know, House Republicans in control and why you know Donald Trump came very close to winning in 2020, even though he lost by seven million votes. Yeah, so there are a lot of institutional impediments that are some some might be uh, redressed by reform. Some you know probably are impossible. The, you know the Senate two senators per state rule is is going to be very difficult to ever really deal with. You know possibly if we add other. Uh, D.C., Puerto Rico, and other places to to the to the country, and they get two senators. There might be a little more reflective balance of power in the Senate. But yeah, there you know, our system was set up in a way that minorities can take advantage of certain structural components. Yeah, but if we don't kind of get it together and find a way to talk to groups who will come together to hold up, like you said, truth, uh, actual freedom, democracy. I think we're looking at permanent minority rule and power that's kind of kept in check by, if you look at it now, fascist or authoritarian means. I mean, with the rise of Christian nationalism and these increasing attacks on women and education and sexuality, we could also be looking at some version of theocratic type dictatorship where God is part of everything. And the fact of the matter is none of the directions the Republicans are heading us in are good, but the majority of the American public 
doesn't want to live in an authoritarian country or a theocratic country. So we need to find a way to come together in all states, in the whole country, um, so we don't just have some sort of a drip, drip, drip taking of our rights until one day we look up and we're like, what? We live in the Handmaid's Tale? Like, when did it yeah. become man in High Castle in here? You know, like, we really need to... Uh, pay attention, which is why, like you said, there's people that would rather watch Dancing with the Stars than listen to my podcast. And it's one of the reasons I do those rants in my kitchen because they're shorter and they're smaller and people can digest things that are happening in bite-sized pieces because that's kind of where people's attention span is, yeah. right? And I'm hoping that once they get engaged, then they can come and and and, and learn more. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's incumbent on people who want to protect democracy to try to reach people anywhere, anywhere, any way they can, you know, whether it's you know, your rants, um, whether you know, other things on TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and they're just a host of ways to do it. And unfortunately, uh, you know, we live in a very fractured uh, information ecosystem, and it's hard to reach a large number of people through a single means anymore because everybody's kind of nichified in their intake of informational content mixing news with entertainment with shopping with um social media so it's uh it's it's very hard to get clear shots at people if you're trying to make a case for for this that or the other thing but you know just because something's hard doesn't mean you you, you give up on it um and we're not quite at gilead yet um there are certainly are people who would want us to live in a society like that in the handmaid's tale but um you know you, you see you know people some people being you know radicalized or inspired or uh, energized by the dobbs decision and you know we saw in kansas uh, in the referendum there how people came up with a very clever way to preserve yeah, it's a big deal right, you know to preserve you know the right to the abortion and in, um, in the state constitution and hard lesson but rights that have often been won, you know, through fights and sacrifice, you know, do not last forever. And you have to continually, you know, reaffirm them. And sometimes you have to come go back and fight for, fight for them again. So, you know, the religious right um, has taken advantage of the moment to, uh, in some places, pass abortion restrictions that are not supported by the majority. At and, all. Okay. Okay, now now we see can the you know can the majority strike back and and regain these rights and push back these assaults on the freedom of women. It's an, you know it's an open question, but it's certainly you know there's reason to believe that it can happen here, and and the positive thing can happen that you can lose rights, have rights chipped away, and then fight to uh, regain them or find different ways to. Um, to advance uh, those rights, uh, and but this is a long-term process. And, and if you, you know, going back, which I'd like to do to my book, American Psychosis. You know, <laughs> one of my you know, one of my favorite you know sections is explaining the rise of the new right in the 1970s, which you know also came at the same time as the rise of the religious right. In fact, the new right gave birth to the religious right in the late 1970s. And that you know helped elect Ronald Reagan president in the sure 1980s, and, and and a lot of this 
was a response to the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision in which conservative evangelicals said, okay, you know, we, we need to get involved in politics because we don't, you know, we're, we want to criminalize abortion, you know, recriminalize abortion. In some places it was criminal. And um, they put a lot of effort into mobilizing themselves and into getting Ronald Reagan elected president. And they thought, they, you know, they really thought that once he was in the White House, he would push to criminalize and outlaw abortion, as well as to do the same with pornography and violence on TV and other things that were on their to-do list. Well, it turned out that Reagan got in there, and while he, you know, talked a good game and supported these people and hugged them and had them to the White House and, you know, gave them through some bones in their direction— he would not do what they wanted. He did not push to criminalize abortion and outlaw pornography. He focused more on foreign policy and on tax breaks for the rich, other elements of the conservative agenda. And some of them are really ticked off about this, but they got an idea. And that was, you know, it's going to be really hard to enact these minority positions. The reason why Reagan didn't want to do this was because it was bad politics. Right. And, that you know, Congress didn't want to ban abortion because it was bad politics, because most Americans did not want to see that happen. So they got this idea. Well, you know what? You know, we understand what the, you know, the politicians are going to be are not going to do exactly what we want. Um, so there's another branch of government out there that no one pays a lot of attention to. It's called the courts. And they spent 40, 50 years focused like demons on mm-hmm. the courts and placing on the courts judges who would overturn Roe v. Wade and be on their side in the in the cultural, religious, political wars. And, you know, credit where credit is due, the strategy worked. The right It certainly did. Yep, it paid, certainly it's did. Paid far more attention to the to packing the courts and the Supreme <sighs> Court than the left has, and they got what they wanted. Okay. They won that fight. Fight ain't over. And now we'll see what can happen in terms of legislatures, uh, state legislatures, Congress, and fighting back in some of the court stuff. I mean, that's also why we need people like you and independent media and Mother Jones and hopefully people like me that are doing what we're doing to kind of tell people what's really going on. Because if a third of the country is being gaslit every day, they won't know until it's too late. Okay, so I was talking about our new sponsor, Little Spoon, a couple weeks ago because I was bummed it wasn't around when my kid was little, and now I've been talking about it to everyone ever since. Little Spoon makes fresh, healthy meals and snacks for babies, toddlers, and little kids and delivers them straight to your door. You just put it in the fridge or the freezer and then use it whenever you need it. They have everything from fresh organic baby food with single ingredients to multi-textured purees for older, more mature eaters. They have toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk but taste amazing. Think of things like hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggies, and pot stickers and gnocchi. They even have healthy snack smoothies in convenient pouches in flavors like strawberry banana shake and purple carrot acai bowl. As I said before, when my son was young, I had this illusion that I was going to be the perfect mom, blending up all these fresh organic meals that he would just love. But it's really hard to be a good parent with all your good intentions when you run out of time and energy. Little Spoon is what I was trying to do, but without the work, delivered right to your door. 
You get to pick the menus and you can change it up whenever you want. It's convenient and adorable and made with the cleanest, most high quality ingredients. It's also a great thing to give to grandparents to keep in their freezer or for babysitters when they come over. It's a win-win for everyone. So make the chaos of having a little, a little more manageable with time-saving, delicious, and healthy meals and snacks from Little Spoon. Go to littlespoon.com and enter the code politicsgirl at checkout to get 50% off your first Little Spoon order. That's L-I-T-T-L-E-S-P-O-O-N.com and enter our code politicsgirl for 50% off at checkout. Being a parent is hard. Make it that much easier with Little Spoon. I mean, your book, American Psychosis, is basically a story of how one of our two political parties has used the worst elements of our personality and our politics to poison our democracy and our ability, really, to interact with one another in order to remain in power. And this is just another process of it. Like, they're using democracy. They said, oh, we're not going to get what we want through Congress because it's not popular politics, so we're going to shift our attention to the courts, and the courts will give us our wish list. And now we're looking at a different wish list. Like, we're looking at, you know, you were talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene earlier. She's basically a kingmaker now, right? She's the Freedom Caucus, which is not really that many more than 20 people, which is this anti-democracy, pro-violence, insurrection-dominated Republican group are now dominating congressional committees. They have made Kevin McCarthy agree to every single thing on their wish list to make sure that they gave him his vote because he wanted to be speaker that badly. So the problem is, is that what do we do with that kind of chaos um, that we're seeing in government? Are we just lucky that it'll be stopped every time by a Democratic House or a Democratic uh, president? Well, you know, we still live in a place where political power is apportioned on the basis of voting. You know, we talked earlier that there's some, you know, that the voting system is skewed in some ways, but not totally. And thus, you know, enough Americans who feel a certain way can come together and create political power to advance their own ideas or to block those that they find detestable. Right now, the American public, unfortunately, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with the Republican rule in the House. Do they want a debt ceiling default? Do they want a bill that will get rid of the IRS and income tax, but impose a 30% sales tax across the board, about as regressive a tax policy as one can imagine? Do, you know, do they want to see Marjorie Taylor Greene in a leadership position? Do they want to see um, 37 different hearings about Hunter Biden or not? You know, the Republicans have promised to show us their true colors. And, you know, fortunately, the House is up for re-election in less than two years. And, you know, we, we can see whether this works, you know, this works for them or not. Um, yeah. And it's unfortunate that we might have to go through a lot of trouble and damage if they default on you know the debt ceiling if they force for force a default uh mark zandy of moody's um a year ago or so said at that time that a default could lead to the loss of six million american jobs and 15 trillion dollars in american wealth and okay you know uh you know they have the power to do this i don't you know there is no way if they're committed to this, that I think 
the Democrats and the Biden administration can ultimately stop it if they want to go off that cliff. It's like, okay, you want to run off that cliff. We can't build a barrier to prevent that from happening. And so if it happens, we'll be very, you know, interesting political science experiment to see how the public reacts. Now, unfortunately, as I said, that means people will lose their jobs and retirees will not be able to retire. Your social security recipients will be hard pressed um, if checks don't come those who live from paid from social security check to social security check. So this experiment will be fueled by a lot of suffering. Yes, but will they blame the right person for the suffering or will they blame the president and his party? And is that the the risk that they're taking? Yeah, that is that that is a big issue. And it's you know, it, it's the responsibility of the Democrats and Joe Biden to make it crystal clear about what they support and what they're doing, what their plan is here versus the actions the Republicans are are taking. You know, when we saw, you know, Newt Gingrich shut down the government in the late 90s, uh, Bill Clinton did a pretty good job of saying, here's their side, here's our side. And, you know, Gingrich was damn sure that everyone would blame Bill Clinton. And he was completely wrong about that. The public, you know, listened to, you know, to each. And they saw Newt Gingrich as the guy throwing bombs and throwing a monkey, a monkey wrench into what was a, you know, a, a decent economy at the time and causing the chaos. Now, you know, my, one of my you know, general beliefs is that many Americans who don't follow politics closely, when they look at Washington, what they want most is to not see a mess. They want to think that people are taking care of business and not throwing bombs and, and not creating turmoil. Now, we do know that 20 to 30 percent of the public now on the Trumpian right want want chaos. They're like they're like the Joker in the Batman movies. They want chaos. They want to see things blown up. They don't care if the shrapnel comes in their direction or not. It's a cultural fight. They just want to see detonations and explosions and, and carnage. They want to see the American carnage that Trump, you know, claimed he was against in his first inaugural address, his only inaugural address. Okay, most Americans, though, want to look at, towards their politicians and believe, whether they agree with them or not, that they're acting in an orderly fashion and they're doing their jobs. Just the same way that if you were a boss and you looked at people in the office, you don't want to see papers and paper clips and you know envelopes flying around. You want to see work getting done. And so here is the democratic opportunity not to reach the 20 to 30 percent who are with, you know, who want the chaos, who want the disruption, but the others to say, we're the adults, we're trying hard, we want to do what we can to help you and keep the economy um, from imploding. And look at these other guys. Look what we have to work with. Yeah, like don't speak to the people that cheer the Joker. Speak to the rest of the people in Gotham City. That's what they have to do. They have to sell those people and yeah, not waste yeah. their time with uh, yeah. the people who want to see it burn. Right. I mean, that's you know, um, what Heather McGee wrote, this great book, I, which Todd was eluding me, but the, the, but the compelling metaphor was looking at some Southern communities where they were being forced legally to integrate public pools, some of these communities shut down their pools. They'd rather, rather have no swimming. They'd rather have no swimming pool 
in the hot summertime than have to share a swimming pool with someone whose skin color was different than theirs. And okay, that, you know, they have their priorities, but, you know, it's, you know, they don't seem rational to me, to them, they believe they're making a rational choice, right? And so when you're dealing with someone like that, you really have to understand what their motives are and in what direction, if any, they can be moved or if they can't be moved. But if they don't want you know, if they don't want anything to do with black people so much that they'll close down the swimming pools for their own kids, okay, you can't you can't work with that. You can't work with that. So what else do you do? Then you build swimming pools in the communities that that will accept them. You find you know, other ways to turn on fire hydrants. I mean, you, whatever you find other workarounds, and that's what we need. You know, uh, now to really be smart in finding workarounds. Uh, to protect our democracy from those people who are, you know, driven to support authoritarianism, minority rule, and, you know, and, and to, you know, get what they want to get, which may not be what we think should be their, 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 their goals and their desires. Or even probably what's best for them. But the thing is, everybody gets to decide what's best for them. I remember the beginning of the Trump, you know, administration, there was a great story. I don't, I, I don't know if I saw it on TV or it was in the New York times, but one of his, one of the early budgets caused a cutback in spending on rural health care, And that led to the closing of health, health clinics in some rural areas. And they went to one of these areas and they found, um, I remember one particular couple who now were not getting or would not get the medical care that they had been getting through this federal big government program, liberal program, right? And they said, we understand Trump's doing this, but we still support him. Now, you and I can look at it and say they're not serving their best interests, right? And that seems kind of the UMB. Counterintuitive, yeah. But in their view of the world, you know, they would say, well, you know, we still think he's better than the other side. And, you know, you know, we understand that, you know, we're losing something here, but they still thought they were getting something bigger by staying on his team. Yeah. You know, don't know, you know, can't do much about that. No, you can't do much about that. And when we look around and we see that, you know, as a veteran political journalist and someone that's been in D.C. for a really long time, what do you think we can tell people to offset that feeling that we can't do much about those people, to offset the crazy or the decisions that make no sense to us without going crazy ourselves. Because I wonder, you know, how much people are supposed to be able to manage, how they're supposed to handle this, to feel like they're taking crazy pills. How do we, how do we handle this and be productive and be proactive and make these choices without actually going into a psychosis ourselves? I take great comfort in there's more of us than them. The True. numbers just just show that. Okay. You know, sometimes the craziest people, the loudest people uh, in the room get the most attention and seems, and it can seem like they're setting the debate. You know, we, you know, people obsess about Fox and all the horrors on Fox, but even Fox, you know, it's a good night for them. 3 million, 4 million viewers in a country the size of 300 million people. We're still talking an audience of you know, one to two, you know, not even 2%. 
right? So, you know, I think we give them larger than, you know, life um, importance sometimes. And the truth of the matter is that most people do not watch cable news. Most people, unfortunately, do not read a newspaper. Most people do not subscribe to Mother Jones or the National Review, unfortunately. I mean, very small percentage of people, you know, follow all this stuff, which also means that, okay, why did, how do they make, what did their decisions turn on? You know, are they reachable? And I think in some ways, the answer is yes. It means a lot of people are not in any one particular camp, which means with the right strategies. Uh, and the right messengers can, and the right people, you could reach them. And the right organization, uh, you know, organizational tactics, you know, they're reachable. And I don't think it's, you know, about necessarily being in the middle and cutting differences. I think, you know, human beings are story-driven animals. And telling the right story, figuring out how to convey that story is really a big piece of politics that I think a lot of politicians don't fully understand. They don't fully understand how our brains and minds work and how to, you know, hook people in a positive way. Um, into a message, into you know, acting politically. So I think there's still a lot of a lot of room to maneuver, and it's you know I write about Tucker Carlson and Glenn Greenwald and other people who are pushing disinformation and so on, but I also realize uh, that there's a lot more going on in the world too, and and, and a lot of people are not fully paying attention and that, you know, you want, there are times when you just got to think about how, how do you grab them for a few seconds? Often that's around a, a presidential election or a movement like say gay marriage, which came out of nowhere and within a few years had tremendous success. Now, again, we see the right with the Dobbs decision saying gay marriage may be next. And well, you know, they, they're having a hard time reversing gay marriage. They are once again, targeting the LGBTQ community using, you know, uh, the classroom as a battlefront and drag shows as a battlefront and accusing people of grooming and affiliating, uh, associating homosexuality with pedophilia. You, you know, we see, you know, they've, they've, they've lost the gay marriage or the, you know, the marriage equality fight and they're, but they're still coming back. Okay. So we see this happening and we know we, you know, people need to fight back and tell the positive side of these stories make fun when you can uh, of the other side, but not be driven crazy by their crazy. Just realizing that that, and this is, I think, you know, maybe how my book can be useful. That crazy has always, always, always been there through Trump, through the changes in the information systems we use now. It's been able to amplify itself organize itself in ways that it couldn't do in the past and also just be more in our face than it could in the past. But right. it's not, it's always been there. It's just often you couldn't see it or you could turn it off if you didn't want to see it or didn't have the influence that it has now. It wasn't, didn't have the recognition that Trump and the party afford it these days. Uh, but it's always been there. And so, okay, at times you want to confront it Sometimes you want to ignore it, but most importantly, you want to have your own story to tell and, and, and care more 
you need to care more about, in some ways, your audience. And I know I've gone in a long time, but one point that I'm often, as someone who's worked for The Nation Magazine, Mother Jones, and goes on MSNBC, and who wrote this book and other books, you know, people often say, oh, you're just preaching to the choir. How do you get this message to other people? You're preaching the choir. And I don't know, a few years ago, I actually thought long and hard about this. I said, well, damn, preaching to the choir is a wonderful thing to do. If, you know, if there's no choir, who comes to the church? Who has a good time in the pews? You know, the choir is the front line, right? They're the ones who are there when it's raining outside, and, you know, they still get up and they come to church because they're in the damn choir. They have to come. And you want your choir to be as strong, as big, to sing as loud and boldly as you can. And if you, you know, and if you're, you know, making sure they know what's what, then they can do their job. And if they're singing well, then other people will pick up the tune. So I think, you know, a lot of this is not being, you know, you don't be psyched out or freaked out by the other side and it's crazy, but you really want to make sure that your side is well fed and it's happy and it's engaged and it knows knows the chords and the words to the song. And, you know, because you know what? You have control over that. You can have, yeah. you have, you can shape the choir. You can't shape the people who don't come to church, you know? No. And if, they, if, if any of us have, have uh, seen Sister Act, we know how good a great choir can be, right? <laughs> yeah. You can fill that church, right? If we do yeah. something that speaks to people and, and, and tugs their heartstrings and tells them a good story and gives them a good show and engages them, then we fill our church. And then we send those people out into the world to talk to other people. I mean, you're talking about it's, it's the message. It's the right story. It's finding the right people because at the end of the day, we are the majority and we must speak to the other people in the majority. And it, that starts at home with organizing. It's not an every two years voting thing, every four years voting thing. It's an everyday thing from your dining room table to your barbershop. You're talking about it. And if you happen to be the choir, then sing loud and sing proud. Yeah. I want to thank you for joining me today, David. Honestly, I've admired your work for so long, and I really hope people will join me in supporting your amazing journalism. Subscribe to Mother Jones, to your newsletter, Our Land, and check out your books, because in a world of Tucker Carlson's, we definitely need more David Corns. Well, thank you so much. People can um, get a free trial subscription to my Our Land newspaper by going to davidcorn.com. Yeah, David Corn, that's corn with a C, dot com. And you can check it out. And of course, please follow me at motherjones.com. Yeah, I can't recommend him highly enough. Thanks again, David. Thank you. So that was David Korn reminding us that at the end of the day, we might not be able to convince the people who cheer for the Joker or the citizens who prefer Trump's American carnage to listen to us or to reason. But we need to remember that they aren't the majority and the wish list of the leaders who represent them aren't things the majority wants. We need to take our anxiety amidst the chaos and turn it into action to organize and communicate, to be the person or find that group that tells the right story to bring others into our metaphoric church. We're looking at rough waters ahead, but we'll have a better chance of survival if we stay calm and work together through the storm. I want to thank David for joining us today and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Until next week, PG out.
The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.